Welcome to Ideas at the House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and on today's podcast, we have another live recording from Antidote 2018. In last week's episode, we heard from Chelsea Manning, who famously leaked hundreds of thousands of classified military documents to the public. This set something of a benchmark for the way we expect to be able to access information and expose just how tightly controlled this information often is. Working for Human Rights Watch, Joshua Lyons exposes information in different ways. Gathering and analysing video imagery from satellites, drones and even social media, he is able to sort truth from propaganda and his work helps expose human rights abuses and brings perpetrators to justice. His talk at Antidote contained lots of imagery that we've put up on the Sydney Opera House website. So while you're listening, jump in there to see some of the photographs he refers to. The link's in our show notes. Josh was at Antidote with Triple J's Tom Tilly. Joshua's work is absolutely fascinating and it raises some really important questions about objectivity and truth <coughs> in conflict zones. And uh, from my own experience, um, I guess my first real exposure to these difficult questions was reporting on the Syrian civil war, where you're like, well, what, what's really going on in there? Who do you trust? Do you trust the government sources? Do you trust the UN? Do you trust NGOs? Do you trust individuals who are posting their accounts on social media? And Josh's work uses some of that technology like social media, but also satellite imagery to actually try and take us one step closer to objective truth in conflict zones, which is obviously really complex. <coughs> now, we're about to hear from Josh and he's gonna show you some of his work. After that, um, you'll have a chance to ask him any questions you want. And I've got a few curly ones of my own as well. Um, Josh, welcome to the stage. Give him a hand. Thank you. What we are looking at on the screen is a recently declassified satellite image of the Tibetan capital city of Lhasa, taken in March 1966, just at the start of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which led to widespread building destruction and uh, cultural destruction of cultural artifacts in the city. And it was taken by the world's first Earth observation system, a top-secret American military program called Corona, not to be confused with the beer, um, designed for conducting Cold War military surveillance primarily of Soviet bloc countries and China. And this, well this is, let me give you a hint. All right. It's not a piece of abstract modernist art. It is in fact another satellite image recorded over exactly the same location in the city of Lhasa it's taken 10 years later, in 1976, by the world's first non-military Earth observation system, also an American civilian project called Landsat, which, as you can see, was not designed for conducting detailed surveillance of human activity on the ground, but rather for something completely different, for conducting country and continental and global scale environmental and scientific research. And for the better part of 23 years after, this remained 
the state-of-the-art technology for civilian Earth observation. Okay? And it really is precisely this stark contrast between the military and the civilian capabilities that embodies at the time this historic state monopoly on advanced technology for conducting detailed monitoring of human activity and events on the ground, but from space. And the practical implications of this for the human rights community and more broadly for humanitarians and for investigative journalists, for war correspondents, means in practice that in order to document authoritatively human rights abuses and violations of international humanitarian law, the Geneva Conventions, you have to physically go where the abuses are being committed. You have no other alternative. And this is a classic example of what this means in practice. This is a friend and colleague of mine talking with the survivor of a Saudi coalition airstrike in northern Yemen that killed his son and many more. This is what it means to conduct a traditional human rights investigation on the ground, collecting testimony from witnesses, survivors, and even, if possible, from the perpetrators themselves with nothing more advanced than a pen and paper and a camera. But as you can imagine, there are many significant challenges to that methodology and approach. So imagine, for example, how do you collect your, your, your testimony if you have no physical access to that area? The government has denied you access. The rebel forces have denied you safe passage or when it's simply too dangerous to go, what do you do? How do you evalu evaluate and critically assess the accuracy and, and truthfulness of the testimony that you are able to collect in the absence of any other information? And even when you have established the veracity of the testimony, how do you communicate that to a world and to a public and governments that are increasingly suspicious and cynical about exactly this type of, of narrative evidence. Now, unfortunately, during the Cold War and for many years after, there really was no technical solution to address or overcome or moderate these challenges. You just did the best you could. And this fundamentally changed in the late 1990s when the American government decided, for many complex reasons, to declassify and commercialize some of their top secret technology. And they created, in turn, the world's first very high-resolution civilian satellite called Iconos. But what's interesting about this moment in time is that there was not a rush to adopt this technology. In fact, it was the opposite. There was this very, very interesting um, and significant resistance and, in fact, outright opposition by humanitarian agencies in deploying this technology, 
Now, it may, seem it may sound strange, but I think that there were many legitimate reasons for, for that. Um, the, the first is practical. None of these organizations had any experience using uh, new technology, let alone satellite imagery. They had no infrastructure to do it, okay? It was just not an option. The second, and I think more compelling reason, was that there was a legitimate concern that field staff utilizing new technologies would fundamentally endanger them at, at, at very unique and easily identifiable moments in time, precisely when they're crossing a border, when they're at a checkpoint or roadblock. The fear was um, staff with a GPS device at the time or a satellite map could get them arrested for espionage or worse, summarily executed on the spot. Now, there was a third reason, and it was this. I hope some of you recognize this event. This was the infamous UN Security Council meeting in early 2003, just on the eve of the Iraq War, when the US Secretary of State, Colin Powell, presented to the Council and to the world dramatic satellite imagery evidence, he said, of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction program. But as we quickly learned, soon after the invasion, it showed no such thing. Their interpretation of that wrong, of, of that imagery, was wrong, with the consequence of hundreds of thousands of people dead. Now all of these concerns packed up together and acted effectively to delay this uh, adoption process within the broader humanitarian and human rights community. And it really is within just the last few years that there has been a more, uh, a more broad um, and equal acceptance of this technology and a, a broad range of technologies, not just satellite imagery, but also robotics, drones, uh, artificial intelligence, quantitative analysis, big data analytics, um, but it is really a recent phenomenon. But let's cut to the chase and actually just look at what this means in practice, okay? Last year, we used satellite imagery to remotely document what the UN fact-finding mission has just concluded was a Burmese military campaign to destroy the Rohingya people. And this is what genocide in microcosm looks like. Okay. This, is the this is the village intact, in and this is the image after. This is a small village in Rakhine State that has been burned completely to the ground. The significance of imagery for this investigation was that it provided in near real time primary information about what was happening on the ground at a moment when it was physically <laughs> impossible to do so through other traditional means and methods. It was simply too dangerous and, and, and physically impossible to get to these locations. And in point of fact, 
the most of the UN uh, is, is it is impossible for them to travel to these affected villages. No one has actually visited them so far. What we see here is a destroyed Rohingya Muslim village at the very top of the image, top of the screen. And the significance is the village at the bottom and at the right. That is an undamaged Rakhine Buddhist village. And what this is providing us with is a critical insight to the genocidal character of this military operation, the selectivity, the targeting of the destruction. And as this campaign of terror progressed, we were able to compile a detailed quantitative assessment of the dates and the locations of villages as they were being destroyed. Information, again, that would have been impossible to have collected using traditional methods. And moreover, this information, in turn, allowed Human Rights Watch researchers and UN investigators to critically assess and verify the testimony of hundreds of witnesses and survivors who had fled into Bangladesh and to evaluate that testimony in a way that would have been impossible before with a higher degree of confidence and, and to communicate our, our confidence and the validity of that testimony to the world with graphic supporting evidence. So you're probably asking yourself now, well, this is interesting, but what's the government's response? All right, what's the feedback that we might get from this work? Well, it's safe to say they don't like it. Let's flash back to the fall of 2016. We used satellite imagery to document a smaller and earlier round of Burmese military destruction of Rohingya villages. Um, in Rakhine State, following uh, a mil uh, Ro Rohingya militant attack on a base there. This was really a precursor to the ethnic cleansing that we saw last year. And our report deeply offended the Burmese military and the civilian government. And as you see here on, uh, on the left, this is uh, Zote, the Director General of the State Counselor's Office. And speaking on behalf of the Nobel Peace Prize recipient, Aung San Suu Kyi, he held up our analysis in an international press conference and denounced it as fake news. And what they did, their evidence for this allegation, was, was very interesting. It was very clever. They actually flew a military helicopter over the affected villages and they took photographs as you see on the right of the screen and they they very carefully circled the areas of destruction and then they compared their findings with ours which are presented um, somewhat poorly on the left and they concluded we had grossly 
negligently or possibly even deliberately exaggerated our findings. But what was fascinating about this was that when you actually look closely at their own imagery, it shows not less destruction, but more. It actually revealed more destruction than we were aware of precisely because the destruction had occurred immediately following the re release of our report. And so the irony in all of this is that they've actually documented evidence of their own war crimes themselves and given it away to the world, but they've misrepresented it as something completely different. And yes, it took, it took us a little bit of time to unpack this, to figure out what actually, what was what. And then we responded. But by that time, I think it had accomplished what they intended, which was to create doubt in a domestic audience. And I think that worked. But make no mistake about it. The, ev the evidence that we presented, complemented by their own imagery, remains compelling evidence of war crimes. Evidence that hopefully, in the near future, will be used at the ICC or an ad hoc international criminal tribunal to hold those responsible to justice. Now almost exactly at the same moment this was occurring, a nearly identical event happened in Syria. So it was quite surreal having these essentially happen at the same moment. The Russian military flew up one of their drones and they flew it over a school, a damaged school in Idlib. And then they carefully highlighted the damages that they could see in the drone image. Okay, And then they released that to the world through Russia Today and explained that this drone imagery proved there had been no airstrike on the school and they were not responsible. All right? It's very clever. In this case, their drone imagery and our satellite imagery showed more or less the same thing, and we needed something more. So we started looking for additional information, um, like everyone else, on Google and Facebook. And this is what we found. Now watch carefully. Right. What does it show? Well, uh, something unidentified falling down. It's in the daytime. We don't know when it was recorded. We don't know where it was recorded. It blows up. Something blows up. Um, and that's about the extent of it. Okay, um, it's just a video on YouTube. Now, we had a little bit of help with this. We had some local contacts who encouraged us to look at this video. They alleged that the video had in fact captured the Russian airstrike on the school in question. 
But how do we know? It's just this video. It could have been from anywhere. So this is the challenge. In this case, what we do is we break the video down frame by frame and start to examine it carefully and closely. And by matching the visible landmarks and buildings in the video with our satellite imagery, we start to make a match. We start to see that indeed one of the primary buildings in the video matches the school building in our satellite imagery and also, more importantly, the very same building in the Russian drone footage. Okay? And by further <coughs> looking in detail at the moment of detonation, if you get very close, you can actually see the blast cloud is enveloping the school building from two different sides. And this gives us a very high degree of certainty that the detonation occurred immediately adjacent to the school and at a particular angle. And when you compare then the blast in the video with the little yellow circles that the Russian government has so helpfully provided to us, they match. They match exactly. Now the key to all of this is this little white parachute that you see at the top left of the screen. All right, you saw it in the video and you see it here. That's the key to this. With a little bit of Googling, all of you can find out that indeed that parachute signifies this is a very specialized weapon system that's in possession only of the Americans and the Russian arsenal. It's a fuel air explosive device otherwise uh, known as a, a thermobaric bomb. And it has very specialized characteristics. And one of the characteristics is that when it detonates, it does not produce a classic impact crater on the ground, which was exactly what the Russians had identified as evidence for why they had not been responsible and how, why this was not caused by an airstrike. Okay. They were being rather cheeky, I'd say. Another classic example of not um, photographic manipulation or doctoring, but something much simpler and, and more powerful in many ways, which is photographic misrepresentation with the intent to deceive. But again, make no mistake about it, this video and their drone imagery that they have provided to the world remains very objective and concrete evidence of a war crime that ideally will be used at the ICC or at a criminal tribunal in the future. I know we're running a little bit slow. Let's shift gears to drones, everyone's favorite topic. Governments have drones. Human Rights Watch has drones, five in fact now. Um, so I'm curious how many people here have a drone at home? Raise your hand. Oh, don't be shy. <laughs> all right, well, I, I know it's more than that. I mean, my daughter <laughs> flies them all the time. Um, 
Drones do what satellites cannot. That's why they're amazing. They fly around under the clouds day and night, recording video at a resolution satellites physically cannot, and basically everyone can operate them to record anything at any time. And that is in fact exactly what's happening now. They're being used around the world to film everything, including human rights abuses and war crimes. Now, I just discovered a friend of mine is going um, to Ecuador to do a training with Am indigenous Amazonian tribes to provide them with drone technology so they can deploy that to protect their ancestral lands from encroachment by illegal logging. It's breathtaking. It's amazing to think that this technology that was impossible a few years ago is now going into the Amazon jungle and being used by an indigenous tribe for cutting-edge human rights work. Okay, It's amazing. And this is happening everywhere. But what's missing from all of this discussion, this excitement, this hype, is a really serious and, and um, you know, open debate and discussion about what the privacy implications are of this and what the security implications are of this. Um, let me accelerate really quickly because I know I've uh, dragged on. Um, we've recently used them in Lebanon to document a health crisis. And although we had government permission and military permission, our drone was still shot at multiple times. And I was held at gunpoint by a very, very scared farmer who thought I was a spy. Now that ended well, both for me and the drone, thank you. Um, but it didn't have to have ended that way. It could have easily gone much worse, okay? And as we've just heard, uh, a, a journalist in, in Australia, uh, sorry, an Australian journalist has just been, I think, in, in, uh, sentenced for, for at least six years, if, if I'm not mistaken, for, for espionage. And the original arrest was for flying a drone to document uh, street protests in, in Phnom Penh. So that as an example of, of what the significant risks are for, for people to use this type of technology in the wrong circumstance and at the wrong time. The privacy questions are, in my mind, existential. Um, because when you start to think about it, my question to you and the broader question is, are, are we not at risk with our iPhones and our drones and everything else of not supplanting, uh, sorry, not subverting state surveillance, which we're all deeply worried about, but supplanting that with something even more insidious, which is essentially a new world order of, of self surveillance, where we are all essentially becoming an individual big brother, okay? And what privacy implications and human rights implications does that actually mean? Um, now, in keeping with the positive theme of an antidote, um, I didn't want to end on this depressing note. So let me <laughs> just say, uh, although there are, yes, indeed, there are many crazy and dangerous potential applications of technology fully autonomous killer robots being one of them. Um, it is important to recognize, as we've seen, um, that much of the same technology can be used for good. It can be used for documenting and defending human rights and to hold governments more accountable 
by exposing their actions in ways that were impossible just a few years ago. Thank you. Thank you very much, Josh. Fascinating to hear about your work. Um, you've also got a really interesting personal backstory to how you started doing this work and how you came to work at Human Rights Watch because you were actually doing this for the UN, but you left in frustration because what you were finding was inconvenient to them. Can you tell us what was happening there? Yes, the trauma is being uh, relived. Um, <laughs> I, I did work in the UN for, for many years, and using this technology was really my, my dream um, to, to promote human rights. And I thought the UN at that time was the, was the, the be, all, be all and end all, and, and, and this was going to make a significant difference. And in practice, um, it didn't work out quite that way. Um, it, it, it essentially felt like I and, and a small team were, were doing, um, we were perpetually doing autopsies on events with no meaningful hope that any of our work would actually have any impact on anything. Um, the, the more powerful the work, the, the, the more likely it was to be systematically ignored or suppressed. And, and ultimately, I left um, in 2012 uh, precisely because at that time the UN had told our unit to, to stop releasing analysis on Syria. And that was a red line, and so that was the, the, the moment and opportunity for me to then leave and come to Human Rights Watch. And yes, I mean, if, from a personal standpoint, it's, it's been a dream job ever since. But, uh, so what did you have that they didn't want released? Huh, all right. Well, <laughs> yes, we were documenting war crimes. We were documenting war crimes being committed primarily by um, the, the Syrian regime. But the fear, the abstract fear within the UN was that, well, the Syrian government's being backed by Russia, and um, it's very complex. And by releasing this material, it, we might cause a lot of diplomatic pressure um, internally, and so it really was just a, a measure of duck and cover from a bureaucratic standpoint. They just wanted to avoid any problems. It was fear. It was abject fear of the unknown. Um, and, and that happens throughout the UN system, and it continually acts to disrupt and prevent heroic people in the UN from doing their jobs in the way that they need and want to do. So what happens if you do find something really inconvenient? For example, you found um, abuse by NATO forces or, you know, Australian forces, for example. What do you do? Well, with Human Rights Watch, we would publish that. Um, or if we weren't in a position to publish it, we would give it to someone else. We would share it. We'd give it to Amnesty or, or to journalists. So we would make sure that that material saw the light of day. Uh, in the UN context, you would just go home. You'd lock it away. And that's, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. That's not what we always did. We did give it away, but at the risk of our careers. And, and this is really the moral quandary that, that untold number of, of wonderful people in the UN system face every day. 
they're sitting on information they know needs to be public to def defend people's rights, and yet they're told every day not to. Do you ever worry, I mean, obviously the work that you're doing is to use this information for good purposes, which is protecting the human rights of human beings. But do you worry that, you know, people like the Islamic State or other forces or, or Boko Haram or other terrorists um, could be using this information, uh, using the same techniques for purposes that aren't good? Mm. Yeah, that's one of your curly questions, is it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You can be the judge um, <laughs> Let me, let me answer that with, with an example. Um, when we were documenting um, ostensibly secret torture and detention facilities in Syria, we, we were compiling a detailed list not only of the exact locations but also of the military commanders and, and their subordinates who, who were working in all of these facilities. And we were about to release this report to to show the world that there were these, there was essentially an archipelago internally within Syria of, 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 of buildings of, of death. And my concern at the time was that we were providing detailed coordinates and, and satellite imagery of all of these facilities. And my fear, the abstract fear, was that what if um, one of the rebel groups um, or the Al-Qaeda affiliates had basically taken our report as, as a target list? and then conducted a, a car bombing and blew up the building, killing both people inside, the prisoners, as well as, as, as civilians uh, walking down the street. And I, this was a legitimate concern. And imagine what the repercussions would be, essentially that our report has provided a, 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 a weapon um, to kill people. And what was fascinating at that in, in the internal discussion was um, the, the, one of the researchers who was involved in collection of the primary evidence said, well, abstractly, that, that sounds like a reasonable concern. But in reality, every man, woman, and child in Syria knows where these buildings are. Okay? It's only secret to the rest of the world. It's not secret to the Syrians. And that's why we're writing this, this report. Okay? Um, there is no risk that anyone would want to use this report to do some strategic activity with it. It just wouldn't happen. They already know. Now, that's not to say that, that ISIS, for example, uh, doesn't take advantage of some of these new technologies. They have. Um, they, are, they have weaponized small commercial drones and turning them into essentially guided, improvised weapons. And many people have died, actually, from, from these weaponized, these little Chinese drones that you can buy in the store. They stick plastic explosives on it, they fly it off, and they're incredibly effective. And you may have seen, actually, the, um, uh, the, the President uh, Maduro in Venezuela was, was uh, uh, apparently almost killed in a, an attempted drone assassination. So, yes, the, the, the potential is, is certainly there. How do you check your own biases? Because obviously um, all of these um, conflicts exist within a political context. And for example, in, in Burma, the suspicion was initially, I imagine, when you set out to do that work, that there was you know, destruction of these villages and um, gang rapes by the Burmese military. Um, 
you're taking in such a vast array of information, um, testing a thesis essentially, potentially. How do you how do you check that you're not just finding the dots to you know create that narrative sure. and not giving a true picture of what's really mm -hmm. going on? Sure. Well, there's a reason why I showed that slide with uh, the the former UN's, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell and and those images because that that's that's an experience that sort of I use as as a as a guide every day I do my work um, precisely because I know that these images are just images really I mean what matters is the human interpretation that you put on it and. Ultimately, in many circumstances, you really are not in a position to, uh, to decide, to adjudicate between competing interpretations of the same stack of images. I have a favored interpretation that I'm, I'm fairly confident about, mm. but I really can't control for those smaller probability interpretations that, if, if in fact they were true, would mean a completely different legal interpretation of, of the imagery, all right? And that is precisely why I, I left the UN system and came to Human Rights Watch in a broader sense, precisely because to do this type of remote work from a desk in Geneva or anywhere else for that matter is fraught with peril unless you can combine that work dynamically and interactively with amazing people who are doing the traditional investigations on the ground in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, as we speak. Because it's through that interaction where I'm able to say, well, I have this imagery, I think it shows this, what do you think about that? And I say, oh, no, no, you're wrong. It's absolutely not that at all. It's really this. Ah, okay, it was, it was, it was interpretation B, that was the accurate one. It's that interaction of completely different sources of information and research from the ground and from the sky that really starts to become um, a, a new gold standard for an investigation. Because when we combine the video with the testimony, with the satellite imagery, we can triangulate between these very desperate f sources and, and means of, 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 of information and combine them in ways that are much much stronger than the, the sum of the constituent parts. In a moment, we're going to come to some of your questions, so um, start getting them ready, and we'll bring a microphone to you so that we can um, enjoy it again if we want to listen back on the podcast at some point. Um, Joshua, what are, the, what are the biggest technological advances on the horizon that will make your work way more powerful? Well, I had a few slides, but I cut them, unfortunately. But... Um, we have just entered into a partnership with um, one of many new satellite companies. Uh, in this case, it's a company called Planet. And what they have done is something incredible. They've launched a constellation of micro-satellites. They're basically the size of a shoebox. And they now have over 160 of them, and they've done something that no one has ever done, military or civilian. They're now imaging the world every single day at a resolution almost as good as the images that you've seen here. It's unimaginable that this would have been possible even five years ago. It's unthinkable. Now, 
the opportunity is that this provides us with a daily image, essentially, of the entire world. And the monitoring capabilities of this are really things, it's, it's hard to even imagine where this will lead us. But the practical challenge, obviously, is how do you look at it all? Huh? Um, and of course, the answer is you can't. Um, if we had every human being on the planet, we might make a dent. Um, but it just won't come close. So that's, that's really where artificial intelligence and machine learning comes in, in, into view. It's precisely this unique opportunity that is also just brand new that we have also engaged in a partnership with, with um, a, a large company, NVIDIA, to help us start to build together the first analytical um, artificial intelligence program to look for human rights violations in this mass sea of, 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 of imagery. Incredible. All right, who wants to be first? Not you. Um, in the front row here. We'll just get a microphone to you. Hello, thank you, Josh. That's <laughs> fascinating. Um, when, when we look at that, those images of the progressive burning of the Rohingya villages, yeah. um, you know, what, well, mostly what you're saying is we're documenting human rights abuse, crimes that have happened. But, you know, as a, as a humanist, which I'm sure we all are in this room, <laughs> I'm looking at it and thinking, how can it be used to actually prevent them happening? You know, if you see something that's progressing like that, is it within the realm of what Human Rights Watch can do to warn the next villages, or is that outside of your scope? Because I know Human Rights Watch is apolitical and doesn't take sides, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it seems to me saving lives would be the best use of this imagery rather than just recording the crimes which may or may not ever get to the war crimes to a tribunal. It's going to be pretty packed by the time they get there. Hopefully it will be packed. Um, I, there's actually two brilliant observations there. Um, the first one is, can the technology be used for practical alert purposes? on the ground to actually give sort of a life-saving mechanism, a, a, you know, a high low-tech form of an early warning for the next village to flee. And that is, in fact, it is a project that we are now uh, discussing internally. Um, and, and this has come up in, in many different circumstances. It's probably not ideally suited for satellite imagery, but it is suited for ground-based sensors that can be installed in schools uh, and hospitals and other protected facilities where essentially it's a, it's a little artificial intelligence box and it documents certain things that you're looking for. So in Nigeria it might be listening and monitoring autonomously for the passage of Boko Haram vehicles and if the vehicles pass and it, it can actually, a little box now can listen can count and actually identify how many vehicles in what direction. And then the, the concept would be that it then alerts automatically, autonomously, the next village and the village beyond that. Um, these things are being discussed. In terms of the prevention in a global sense, which is a different context, we did. We did, Amnesty did, the UN did, all right? Um, we released a, uh, a press release, uh, I believe it was 
uh, within 48 hours, maybe you know, f around 48, 72 hours after the initial fighting started, where we, we were using not optical satellite imagery, but something completely different. It was an environmental satellite that was detecting the fires. It was detecting the thermal radiation from the arson. And we had multiple fires all over Rakhine State. So we, we did a, a press release just on that, saying, it's burning. Okay, that was when the monsoon clouds were still there and it was really impossible to see anything else. And no one had crossed the border. There was no one to talk to. But we had that. Everyone in the UN knew this was going to happen. It was a catastrophe that was obvious. Okay, we can alert all we want, but ultimately it's the international community, it's the regional governments. They're the ones who have to act. In the second row here. I'm on topic, I don't think. Um, uh, I'm not one for nightmares on the whole, but my nightmare of weaponised drones and up to and including printable guns. Um, and I'm just wondering with your experience, connections, um, work history, etc., interests, um, what international efforts are being made or... It, it's a bit like the prevention question. That's yeah. the most tenuous link I can yeah. <laughs> draw between that. But um, uh, weaponised drones is just like, ah. <laughs> yeah, I guess part of the link is that your, your surveillance might be able to um, keep some kind of eye or control on the way weaponised drones are used. Mm. I hope. <laughs> I hope. Um, I, I completely agree. And look, the reality is that it's our obligation to decide what uses of technology are appropriate or not. Okay? And the problem now is we've all been lulled into this sort of consumerist, gee whiz, admiration for these companies that are sh making our lives manifestly better with all of this kit. And, it, I mean, there's many different aspects to that. I mean, you could ar argue, in fact, you know, as our most people's living standards are going down and, and their wages are being suppressed, they're all distracted because they're looking at their iPhone, right? There's this, uh, this semblance of prosperity. But... In reality, the technology is being used and abused and weaponized against us as we speak. And there are companies now with absolutely outrageous you know, projects. Um, you just have to Google questions about artificial intelligence to see that, th that this, this is really a road to a, a terrible nightmare unless we put brakes on it, unless we stand up now, we have to start to debate these questions. Now, one of the good, the, the positive signs of hope is that you may have seen, for example, these rebellions within primarily the American tech sector, where people are signing uh, letters and, and boycotting particular work assignments and calling for Google, for example, to end their their artificial intelligence projects with the U.S. Department of Defense 
precisely because they professionally and personally do not want their technology to be used to kill. Okay? But the problem is that's just the start because we all have to stand up with them. All right? Um, you, there are multiple stories I've just been reading that give me nightmares uh, about private companies creating surveillance technology that are being sold freely to governments that are using them to imprison and kill in no uncertain terms. Okay. Surveillance of everyone. And the problem is there are, there's no, there are no trade regulations, there's no restrictions on the the export of this software. But these are weapons, okay? Um, and one, not weaponized, well, I, I believe in point of fact, actually the weapon, weaponizing, well, it's hard because there's a lot of very powerful UN members that love weaponized drones. Um, there's one good example, let me say, that um, we are, Human Rights Watch is, is, I believe, one of the co-chairs of this coalition against killer robots. So it is an international committee of, of, of eminent roboticists and ethicists and, and military experts who are campaigning for an international prohibition on the research and deployment of fully autonomous lethal weapon systems, robots basically with full authorization and capability to select what to blow up, to select who to die, okay? This is the wave of the future. This is your Hollywood movie. This is the Terminator. This is name your movie. That's the future that they have planned for us, okay? Um, and so there is substantial international movement um, actually, uh, I left uh, my many colleagues in Geneva who were, who were actually uh, in, involved in direct meetings at the UN precisely to move forward this international um, prohibition. We've got a question up the back here. We've got a microphone just coming to you, sir. Just there it is. Isn't everybody in this room a drone? With their e-phone? In the what, what sense do you mean? more than actually the drone. Oh, yes. With your phone, you mean? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I, I mean, to put this in perspective, I could, I could follow my brother, he's a professional skateboarder, around with a drone all day long. And I, I wouldn't learn very much, okay? Um, <laughs> It might be a little annoying to him, um, and it's certainly annoying to me when there's a drone flying over my head. But in point of fact, I can learn qualitatively more by just simply looking at his Facebook page um, or inferring from all of his friends who are photographing his life inside the buildings in private environments where, ostensibly, there is a right to privacy. There's an expectation of, of of private behavior, and that's gone. And that is gone because we are documenting it and giving it away, which is in turn being commercialized uh, at the least and being weaponized uh, in, in the worst situations to, to identify people to arrest. 
Hi, Josh. Hi. Um, I just wanted you to uh, let us know, to what extent did your work on the Rohingya, as well as your colleagues' work on the ground in Bangladesh doing interviews with Rohingya, Rohingyas uh, fleeing um, the slaughter, help lead to the um, UN naming it, labeling it ultimately a genocide? I, I think at a, at, a, at a technical level, um, the imagery, the satellite imagery that was collected over Burma um, did play a, a, a critical role in the overall investigation of, of this most recent UN international fact-finding mission report that they've just, the, 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 the short version has just been released and then the, the full version will, will be released soon. Um, the imagery did play a, a, a critical role. And um, yes, we did give um, substantial amount of input in, and briefing to, to the investigators through that, through that process. Um, but it's important also to note that we were not the only ones. Amnesty International also was using imagery. Um, the UN was using imagery. Um, and it, it, in many ways, there's a complementarity when I'm doing the work, and I know colleagues in Amnesty or another agency or organization are also doing similar work. When we release it, there's sort of a you know a personal or professional feeling about competition, um, but the reality is that it's it's essential because it's 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 independent sources of analysis that are all mutually reinforcing and strengthening each other. Okay, so in that sense the more the better. All right, unfortunately that's all we've got time for. Such incredible questions from the four. Thank you so much. And Josh Lyons, thank Wind. you so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That was Joshua Lyons talking to Tom Tilley at Antidote 2018. Tune in next week for a look at recent upheavals in Australian politics with a panel of some of our finest political journalists Philip Khoury, Nikki Sava and Peter Harcher. Catch you then.